0: let's go ahead and turn to psalm chapter 15 today i remember when i was back in seminary i was working out at the gym and i met this young man and we had kind of struck up a bit of a friendship he was unsaved and he would ride me or chide me a little bit over my faith i think that he saw it as part of his role and so he would tease me and kind of some gentle mocking here and there and So one morning to kind of chide him back a little, I said, you know, I'm kind of curious. Someday when you die and you stand before Christ, what are you going to say to him? Obviously because I'm convinced that that day will come, and he obviously didn't. And so you got a smile on his face, and I don't remember his exact words, but he said something along the lines of, well, I'm pretty good at debate, and I'm pretty sure that as I stand before him, I could argue my way in. And I kind of chuckled and just think I said something like, well, good luck with that. And we went back to lifting weights and doing the treadmill and stuff. You know, it's interesting as we look around our world and, and that, and we see people that do not know the Lord oftentimes, um, I think there's a sense that um, many or most of them believe in some form of afterlife and really think that they're okay. They think, I'm good. And it's because they don't really truly understand the nature of God. It's not as much that they don't understand the nature of themselves. I mean, that's part of the problem, but it's that they really don't understand the nature of God. When you see perfection, when you see perfect holiness, when you see absolute glory, I think it will have a tendency to put things in perspective. I think about Isaiah as he stood before the throne of God, and he said, I've become undone. You know, it has a tendency to do that. And the reality of it is that we have this perfect and holy God and there are requirements to standing or being in his presence. There's no question about that. And our psalm actually has to do with that today. We're not really sure what the purpose of this psalm was. It says that it was written by David. That's the the prescript on it. But there is some evidence that it may have been used as what's referred to as an entrance Liturgy. As pilgrims would make their way to the temple, it is believed that they would use these entrance liturgies as a way of preparing to go to the temple or to prepare to be in the presence of the Lord. Now, we don't know if that's for sure the case with this, but it sure seems to fit some of what we understand about that. And the question ultimately, or the theme for this, is who can abide in the Lord's presence? Now if this truly were a liturgy hymn or an entrance liturgy hymn, the idea there would be that as you're going up to the temple, you would be reflecting on the words of this psalm as a way to prepare yourself to stand in the Lord's presence. And What we have to remember is that in David's day, the Lord's presence was in the temple. It's not like here today in the sense that we can't see God's presence here. There was a physical manifestation at many times with David as they were traveling through the wilderness. But as they were traveling through the wilderness, you remember, you could see the Lord's presence. When he would come down onto the tabernacle, they would physically see it. It was in some respects, many respects, the Lord's house. And so the Jews understood that that's where the Lord's presence was. And so as they went up to that, they would prepare themselves to actually be in his presence. So I thought that what we would do this morning is we would, in some respects, read it like they would and read it together as a congregation as we prepare to study. So we're going to put the words of the uh psalm up on the, uh we going to get it up there? There it is. So what we're going to basically do is the way this would work as, a, as an entrance liturgy is you would have the priest, I'm going to pretend to be the priest today, i to sprinkle all you guys with some holy water, right? Um, the priest would, would say part of it, and the congregation then would respond, the priest would also probably repeat those words, and then it would conclude with a final statement by the priest. So, my part this morning is the priest, and your part is the worshippers. So what we're going to do is I'm just going to start at the top, and you'll respond with, The section in the middle with the worshipers. And we're going to stand as we do this, because they would have been marching, walking on their way up to the temple in Jerusalem. So why don't you go ahead and stand with me as we do this. O Lord, who may abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart, he does not slander with his tongue nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. You can go ahead and have a seat. As I've promised as we go through these psalms, I'm going to do my best to share with you some of the poetry so that we can understand not just the words and the meaning, but how it's written, because sometimes that helps us to understand what it means to us. Now, as it comes to the structure of this, there's actually um, primarily two different approaches. The weird thing about Hebrew poetry is Hebrew itself is very difficult sometimes to translate, Hebrew poetry even more so. And so when we get to the psalms, you're going to find that sometimes different English translations will not just use different words or sometimes say direct um, totally different things with a particular verse, maybe because there's more than one way to really understand the Hebrew there, or at least from our perspective. But sometimes even your Bibles will outline it or structure it differently. And so with this particular psalm, there's two primary ways that it's usually treated in terms of the structure of it. The first one is that verse 1 is actually just a question, and then there's a ten-part answer that everything after that is basically an answer. In other words, who can dwell? And then every one of these are considered an answer, and it's sort of a ten-part thing. Then you've got a concluding promise at the very end. That's one way to look at this. Another way, which is actually um, the way that I prefer to understand it, is that there's a question in the first verse, then the answer actually comes in the second, and it's a three-part answer. And so that's the answer to the question, and then everything else after it, is an expression or a description of that answer. So in other words, he asks the question, he gives the answer, and then he tells us how that answer looks in real life. And I believe that that's probably a better way to structure this, this psalm. I believe that's the way David actually intended it, and there's all kinds of reasons why I believe that I, I won't bore you with all the details. But that's the way we're going to approach it today. It's a question, an answer, and then a description how that works itself out in real life, what's practical about it. Now, in terms of the poetic elements of it, what's one of the, you're going to hear this word over and over and over again, and Dustin can't say it, but Hebrew poetry, remember, English is all about rhyme. What's Hebrew poetry often about? What's the big word? Starts with a P. You got it. Well, what is it? Parallelism, absolutely, parallelism. some two things kind of go together, right? Now, the most common form of parallelism in Hebrew poetry is synonymous parallelism. Anybody know what synonymous is? Synonyms, you know what those are? Synonym means same, right? That's most common. And that's where the author will write a statement, and then he follows it up with another statement that just simply repeats it in the same way, but uses different words. So they're both very positive. Okay. There's another form of synonymism, or or there's another form of parallelism we're going to actually see today that is not quite as common, but it's found. I'm in our Psalm today, and it's something called antithetic parallelism. Now, first four letters of that word: anti. Anti. What does anti mean? You know. It means against, right? So if synonymous parallelism is saying the same thing, just two different ways, what would antithetic parallelism be? The f- it says something, and then it says something opposite. We're going to see that today. There's actually another psalm I'm working on where the whole entire psalm is built on antithetic parallelism, which is pretty cool. So we're going to see that today. Um one of them one of the, the, the places where it does it, it says, the heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. That's not in our psalm today, it's another psalm, but the heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool inclines to the left. You notice the opposites there? Often you can tell when it's antithetic parallelism by the word but. We do that too, you know. I love you, but <laughs> you don't want to hear what comes after that, right? So that's We're going to see some of that today. The other thing that we're going to see in the psalm today has to do with the arrangement of positives and negatives. We're going to see that in this psalm today, he gives us three positive statements, followed by three negative statements, then he goes to two positive statements, and then goes to two negative statements. And you're going to be able to see those here. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. Those are all positive, right? But then he says, he does not slander. He doesn't do evil to his neighbor doesn't take up reproach against his friend. You see how it's three positives, three negatives? And then, but who honors those who fear the Lord? He swears to his own hurt and does not change. Those are positive, right? And Then you've got, he does not put his money out at interest, nor does he take a bribe against his neighbor. Two negatives. So we've got three positives, three negatives, two positives, two negatives. And it's kind of this alternating Cadence, And that's partly what's important with Hebrew. And we see that in English too. We notice with English, we have a cadence. Roses are red, violets are blue. And that's the way poetry sometimes works. And then you break that cadence for any number of reasons. Well, these positive and negative statements also have a tendency to build that cadence as you go through the Psalms. So let's go ahead and break this down and look at the the teaching. What does David want to teach us today? Well, he begins with a question, and it's essentially this. What kind of person can live in the presence of God. What kind of person can live in the presence of God? He starts out with this, "O oh Lord, who can who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill?" There we have our parallelism, right? That's the that's the um synonymous parallelism. Who can abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Now, the first thing we note about this is that the tent or the holy hill has a specific reference to physical locations, right? The tent is the tabernacle. The hill is Jerusalem where ultimately the temple was built. Now, in this particular instance here, these are synonyms that represent the presence of God. That's really what he's hinting at. So the idea of abiding in the Lord's tent or dwelling on his holy hill is all about who can be in the presence of the Lord rather than come right out and say, Who can be in your presence? He couches it in some poetic language about being in the tent or the tabernacle of the Lord or being on his holy hill. So the first thing we note there is that this is all about who can be in the Lord's presence. The second thing we note is that David's question really is rhetorical. He's not expecting an answer back. He's already got the answer, doesn't he? He's going to go ahead and he's going to tell us. So he's already got the answer in mind. But you notice, who is his question directed to? Is he asking the audience or somebody else. Yeah, he's actually asking the Lord, which means that the Lord provides the answer. If you were to ask the average person on the street, what do you think the answer, or where do you think the answer would come from? They'd come up with all kinds of things, probably. Well, you know, um, Buddha says, and so and so says, and oh, I just think this, or I believe this, or I believe that. David is looking for an answer ultimately from the Lord and he has his answer because he's going to go through the law. So the answer to who may abide in your presence, Lord, the Lord has already spoken. He's already given that answer to David so it's a bit rhetorical but he directly and deliberately focuses on the one who can answer that question which is the Lord. We can't answer the question of who may dwell in the Lord's presence when we rely on our own understanding. That's faulty. That's the reason why all the world religions make their gods look more human than divine. So, the second thing to note is that David's question is rhetorical here, but he's ultimately looking for an answer from the Lord. I remember, and I've shared this before, when I was recently saved, I I was Catholic, and I went to a Catholic priest on campus, because I was struggling a little bit. I was raised Catholic, knew all the sacraments and all that, and was hearing something different from friends that I had met through Campus Crusade for Christ that had shared the gospel with me. I had seen a change in my life to some degree. So I went and I talked with a Catholic priest and I told him what had happened then he deliberately looked at me and he said, oh, you don't need to be born again. You're Catholic. You were baptized. you got nothing to worry about. I said, I think I do. So I shared the gospel with him and he obviously didn't accept that and shook his head. He says, no, you're Catholic. You're good. That's man's ideas, not the Lord's ideas. And so... What David's going to focus on here is, who does the Lord say is able to abide in his tent? Who does the Lord say is able to dwell on his holy hill? A third thing to note is that David's immediate attention here is primarily on worship. Remember, if this were a liturgy hymn, if David wrote it for this purpose, they're marching up to the temple, and so his mind is primarily on who can go and worship. It's like us here this morning. It would be almost as if you got to the door and you said, hmm, Am I qualified to go in there and worship this morning? Now, we don't think that way typically because of our salvation in Christ, but for the Jew, it would have been much that way. I'm going into the Lord's temple. You know, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, they used to tie a rope around him. You know why? Because if he died, he wanted his buddies to be able to pull his body back out. Because if he went in and he died, they weren't going to go in and get him. It's because they understood, I'm, I'm literally I'm walking into the Lord's presence. This is where He sits, and so they would do the best they could to prepare themselves to be able to go into that. And so David's primary focus is on worship, but there's something else in the text that indicates that ultimately the question had to do with permanence. Who is able to permanently dwell? in the Lord's presence. There's an eternal element to this. David uses a particular tense here in Hebrew that implies that what he's talking about is not a completed action. It's something that is ongoing. And so another way to translate it is who may continually abide in your presence? Who can continually dwell in your holy hill? Now, we know David didn't go to the temple and stay there. He didn't live there. Samuel did in the Old Testament. But most worshipers didn't. They would visit the temple. But yet David says, who can continually dwell? So what does David probably have in mind? Most likely that continual ongoing presence of the Lord in your life, but also there's probably an element to eternity here. Elsewhere in the Psalms, David actually ties this concept of abiding in the Lord's tent or abiding with the Lord to life after death. In fact, Psalm chapter, Psalm 16, David uses almost the exact same language, but three times in that psalm he refers to doing it forever, for all eternity. He also, in Psalm 16, refers to abiding in the Lord's presence as the opposite of living in shale, which is the afterlife. But in that case, where God does not dwell. And so David ultimately, even though the primary focus is on Who can go and worship and be in his presence? Quite clearly, David, to some degree, had an understanding that, no, this this is permanence. This is continually dwelling in the Lord's presence. There is an eternal element to it, but there is also an earthly element to it of being in the Lord's presence. In fact, James tells us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's a thing here and now. He's not talking afterlife. David probably had something very similar in mind here. So who can continually dwell with the Lord's blessings and presence? Now the fourth and final thing I'll point out about this beginning is that when David asks who, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Do you think he's talking about, you know, specifically which person here and there? Do you think he's talking about Character? When he's asking this question, he's basically saying, what kind of character, the focus is going to be on who we are. What kind of people do we need to be to be able to dwell? Oftentimes when we ask the question who, we think of all kinds of other qualifications. We don't think of character. And David, that's really ultimately, because what he's going to do is he's not going to say, well, it's the Israelite, and oh, it happens to be this tribe or that tribe. It's all going to be about character. So another way to translate this is, who may continually abide in your tent? What kind of character must it require? What kind of person must you be to continually be in the Lord's presence? Not only in this life, but in the next. What's your character have to be like? What kind of person do you need to be? So then David goes on in verse 2, and he answers the question with three phrases. The first one is, he who walks with integrity... Most English translations render this as walking or living blamelessly, which is actually a literal translation of it. So David says, the one is blameless. However, I don't believe David is talking about perfection here, and the reason I know that is because David himself was not perfect, was he? David, we could rattle off some of his sins, couldn't we? But yet, in Psalm chapter 18, verse 23, David is referred to as Blameless. How does that work? David, who committed sin by having sexual relations with someone who wasn't his wife, killing her husband, being deceptive about it, how would he be considered blameless? Yet the scriptures call him blameless. Job obviously wasn't a perfect man, but he was also called blameless many times in the book of Job. The key to understanding that is, according to the, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's not perfection, but the individual who loves the Lord of his whole heart, his soul, his mind. When you think about um, elders in the New Testament, elders are said to be, have to be blameless to be an elder. Well, guess what? None of us would qualify to be elders. But one of the ways that we stay blameless, if you will, is when we sin, we handle that sin biblically. And that's exactly what David did. When David was confronted by Nathan the prophet, he felt remorse, confessed the sin, allowed the Lord to cleanse him. And so when da- when God refers to David as a man after his own heart and ultimately calls him blameless, it's because, not because he was perfect, but because he loved the Lord of his whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And when he did sin, handled it appropriately before the Lord. And so the way that David starts this off is he says, well, he first off has to be Blameless, I do prefer the translation walks with integrity because the idea of blamelessness does indicate perfection. But this idea of walking with integrity, mean, meaning he does the right thing. He goes on, he says, he who works righteousness. That carries that idea a little bit further. He who works righteousness. That refers to having ethical and moral standards that are in line with God's. There is a standard of right. That's where the word righteousness comes from, right? Right. And God establishes those. But you notice that it doesn't just say he's righteous, but what does it say? He works or he does righteousness. Sometimes we think of righteousness as simply avoiding sin or avoiding wrong. But David says he must be one who actually does righteousness or does righteous things. It isn't just avoiding sin, it's doing the right thing. Now the last thing he says is that he speaks truth in his heart. This describes a person who loves the truth. There's no other way to get around it. The one who speaks truth in his heart does so because he loves the truth. It's something that's so embedded in his heart that when he opens his mouth, what you hear is truth. And so these three things, walking with integrity, working righteousness, speaking truth in his heart, are David's answer to, what kind of person can be continually in the Lord's presence. You notice something about those three character traits? Where do they all come from? They come from the Lord, don't they? All three of those are traits of our Heavenly Father. So basically, what David is saying is, the one who can be in the Lord's presence continually must be one who is like the Lord. That's the requirement. One who is like the Lord. He's now going to go on and he's actually going to give us some examples of that. What does it look like? What does it look like when somebody walks with integrity or does righteous things or speaks truth in his heart? What does it look like? Notice those are the first three positive things. He's now going to move on to three negative things to describe some of this. Starts with, he does not slander with his tongue. To slander is to say something about someone else that's untrue. Now, that can either be malicious, something that you know to be untrue, but it can also be something like gossip, repeating what somebody has said that you don't know to be the truth. I think that's probably more common. You know, sometimes we do things maliciously. We know they're untrue, so we spread them, but I think it's probably far more common for us to share things and spread things that we just haven't validated. I think about our typical news cycle watching all the politics now and some of the stuff that comes out continually. I saw um, something this morning, I don't remember what it was, but it's again about the whole whistleblowing thing, but it's something else related. And it was interesting because it was one very obscure website that provided some details, all purely speculation, but you can see that all the other news media had picked it up and basically repeated it. I'm thinking, but none of you have validated it. None of you have even looked into it to see if it's true yet, but it was... Spread as if it was. That's slander. Saying something that's untrue about somebody else. Do you think we ever find ourselves doing that? I mean, think about social media today. Texting, emailing, posting, and how much stuff gets posted that we would categorize as slander, things that are untrue about others. What David says here is the one who stands in the Lord's presence doesn't do that doesn't spread gossip, doesn't slander with his tongue, doesn't say untrue things about other people. He goes on, he says, he doesn't do evil to his neighbor. That's the second negative. There can be two sides to this, I think. Deliberately doing something to harm someone else, or inadvertently harming someone, and then not making it right. Think about that. Inadvertently harming somebody. Either way, when you do evil to your neighbor, neighbor, it's inappropriate. The Lord wouldn't do that, nor should the one who wants to stand in the Lord's presence. He goes on, a third one here. Does not take up reproach against his friend. Anybody know what reproach is? Kind of the idea of taunting, shaming, rebuking. There's a variety of ways that this is translated by your English translations. The Christian Holman Standard Version says, um, discredit his neighbor, make him look bad. NIV says, casting a slur on his fellow man. Um, the New English Translation says, insult his neighbor. You know, it's interesting. There's, um, I think I've shared with you before how for most of my life, I've read I've what, what you would refer to as a pre-trib or a pre-tribber, which means that there are, there are different viewpoints when it comes to the timing of the rapture and the second return of Christ. And, and um, within our circles, the, the most common is going to probably be that pre-trib position, which means that Christ returns, raptures the church, and then there's a seven-year period of, of tribulation. There's another position called pre-wrath, which basically says, well, there's an ele- or a time of, of Satan's wrath. God doesn't pour out his wrath until somewhere probably close to the sixth or seventh seal. And um, so as I've been investigating, you know, kind of how these two fit together and, and where I feel most comfortable theologically, there's an individual that um, has done a ton of work on it. He's got some great material on it, probably one of the biggest proponents of it. But one of the things I can't stand is that when he confronts those who disagree with him, he is he is sometimes brutal, almost getting into name-calling, almost getting into judging their motives, um, saying things that are unflattering about them. And so I finally one day picked up, you know, I shouldn't say, I just picked up pen, but took up the keyboard in my hand and started typing, and I sent him an email. I said, man, I love your your work, and I really appreciate the scholarship you bring to this debate. However, (laughs) man, you are not kind. You are brutal. And a lot of these people that you're attacking... They don't have ill will. They have just as much right to their opinion on this as you do. They're approaching with just as much scholarship as you do. But the fact that you disagree with them does not give you the right to destroy their character or to accuse them of wrongdoing or to call them deceivers or manipulators or anything else. And I said, and that's really making me um, not trust what you say because if I can't trust your character and how you say it, I'm going to start to question your scholarship too because the two go hand in hand. And part of that came from the way that one of my professors challenged me when I had written a critique of somebody else's theology, and I wasn't very nice about it. And he called me out on it and said, Mike, it's okay to disagree, but you can't be mean about it. You can't disparage. Well, that fits into this, that we shouldn't take up reproach against our neighbor. We should not use slander. We should not say things that are untrue. Instead, we ought to be speaking truth from our heart, much like he says up above. So he has these three negatives to describe this. We shouldn't slander. We shouldn't do evil to our neighbor. We shouldn't take up reproach against our friend or our neighbors. He then going to move on to some more positive statements again to describe these things. It says that he despises the reprobate. That's not a word we use often here. But he honors those who fear the Lord. Remember what that's called? What kind of parallelism? Antithetical, there you go, yeah, because we've got what, that word but in there. He says he does, or he despises the reprobate. Despises the reprobate. But he honors those who fear the Lord. Um, Another way to translate this, a more literal translation would be he despises the one who's been rejected. That's what it means to be a reprobate. It means you've been rejected by God. And he says, I despise those. And why would he despise those? Because they don't honor God. If God has rejected that individual... We certainly shouldn't wrap our arms around them. You know, it's funny is that a lot of what we see happening within the evangelical church today as it comes to the whole transgender and uh, movements and all that kind of stuff is we find churches that are embracing something that God hates, something God has rejected. We're not to do that. To call it love and everything else does a disservice to who God is. And so here he says we're supposed to despise what the Lord despises. In this case, he's specifically referring to despising those that God despises, despising those who God has rejected. But on the opposite side of that, it says that he honors those who fear the Lord. I get really disturbed sometimes when I see good, godly people that have that are expressing um, godly thoughts and opinions and see how sometimes they're treated by the church. And I think man, they ought to be honoring them. But quite the opposite is true. We have a tendency to honor the wrong people and dishonor the right people. And um, what David says here is, no, um, I despise those that the Lord has rejected. I despise those who teach things that the Lord rejects. And instead, I honor those who honor and fear the Lord. I've been working through another one of the Psalms where this pattern comes up quite a bit where David um, makes statements regarding how he just rejoices in God's people. Absolutely loves to be around those who fear the Lord, because that's where his heart is. And that, in some respects, is what would be reflected here. He's saying the kind of person that can abide with the Lord is the one who loves and honors those who fear the Lord, who should desire to be around them. He goes on and he says he's one who keeps his word even if it costs him nothing or costs him something. If you look at um, the next statement here, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. That's kind of a weird Hebrew phrase. It's a difficult one to translate, which is again why many of your English translations translate it differently. The New American Standard says he swears to his own hurt and does not change. The NIV says it's one who keeps his oath even when it hurts. I like that translation because I think that captures it very well. He keeps his oath even when it hurts. Other translations, uh, keeps his word, whatever the cost, is another great translation. The New English translation says he makes firm commitments and does not renege on his promise. But again, I kind of like what the NIV does with that. I think it's more appropriate or more accurate that he keeps his oath even when it hurts even when it costs him something. Have you ever been in a situation where somebody has sinned against you, whether it's financially or maybe emotionally or psychologically or other things, and they owe you something, but you somehow work through that and you take that hurt upon yourself, you're willing to accept it and not hold the other accountable completely for it. It may not... Always sound appropriate to us, but isn't that the reality of it? You know, Jesus Himself took our sins, even when He was being beaten and bruised and whatnot. He took whatever it cost. And in some respects, that's exactly what David is talking about here. In other words, He's more willing to take hurt upon Himself when it allows Him to remain living in or living with integrity and honor. I had a conversation this last week with somebody who's going through a very, very difficult time with his marriage. And um, he's been given some instructions and some direction by some attorneys on how to handle some things. And the caution that I kept giving him was, yeah, you're getting hurt, um, but if to avoid some of that hurt, you're going to do things that would um, ultimately impact your relationship with Christ Maybe you shouldn't do them. In other words, you might just have to accept the hurt, if you will, um, by doing the right thing. Swear to your own hurt. Um, The last two negative things he says here. He doesn't put out his money at interest. That means he doesn't take advantage of those who are in need. The Old Testament actually prohibited charging of interest when lending to other Israelites. In other words, they could, if somebody was in financial need, they could lend them money, but they just couldn't charge them interest for it. It was forbidden. Today, that's standard practice here, right? Institutions lend us money, they charge us interest. But even our world, in some respects, understands that that's not always a good thing. Think about the... Um, Charges against some credit card companies for the you know 24, 25, 26 percent interest and other fees and that they get tacked on. So even the secular world sometimes understands the danger of interest. Again, not that it's a terrible or rotten thing. They could charge interest to others, just not themselves. And the idea there was that if somebody came to you in desperate need, you were supposed to reach out to your brother or sister and care for them. And if you made a profit off of their hurt, that was something that was prohibited. The Hebrew word for interest comes from another word. That word is to bite. And I kind of put it into perspective. To bite. So they come to you, they're hurting, they can't make their bills, maybe they, their crops didn't grow like they should, and they come to you for help, and you reach out and bite them by saying, sure, I'll help you at a cost. So he says that that's not what God's people do. I have a, guy that I was in uh, seminary shortly before I was he graduated I think the year that I started I've mentioned it before he's one of my mentors was one of my mentors I don't talk to him a whole lot at this point but um just because he's a whole different state but one of the neat things I learned from him was um he didn't have a whole lot he worked as a newspaper circulation manager for a number of years he was delivering newspapers for a while didn't make a whole lot of money lived in a trailer house um, but he was so gracious with his things and his money. One of the women that worked for him at the newspaper, her husband divorced her. She had two kids. Uh, they only had one vehicle as a family. He took the vehicle, left her without. So this guy, Ben, I noticed one particular day, he had been driving the company truck a lot. And so I asked him, someone, I said, where's your truck? And he's like, well, I don't have it anymore. I said, well, where is it? And he's like, well, I gave it to whoever, the, I don't remember even the woman's name at this point. I'm like, why'd you do that? He's like, because she needs a truck. I said, Don't you need a truck? He's like, well, sort of, but that's why I'm using the company truck. He didn't lend it to her. Didn't sell it. He gave it to her. Gave her the title. Just gave it to her. I got to a point where I needed a a printer for a lot of my seminary work. So I'd come into work one day and I mentioned to him that um, I was going to have to get a laser printer to be able to print some Hebrew text and some other things. And he said, oh, um, you know what? You can have my old one because I need to get a new one. I thought, oh, that's... God's timing and grace. I said, really? He said, like, yep, yeah, not a problem. So he brought it into work the next day. Gave it to me. Found out that two days later he bought a brand new one. Exact same make and model. Ben, what? You said you needed a new one. He goes, I did. Like, but you had, you just bought the same one. He's like, right. And he always played coy. It was part of his personality and part of his humor. And I said, why did you give me yours and buy the exact same one? He goes, because I needed a printer. I'm like, you didn't need a printer you had And he goes, no, I needed a printer because I gave mine to you. That's the way he was. Um, I asked him one time if I could borrow five dollars for lunch and he looked at me and went, nope. I thought, well, that's kind of rude. He reached in his wallet and he pulled out five dollars and he gave it to me. I said, you just told me you wouldn't lend me five dollars because I didn't lend you five bucks. I'm like, you just gave me five. And he goes, yes, I gave you five bucks. And I, I said, I'm, I'm not getting this. And he's like, I don't ever lend. I give. Because in Ben's heart, there was absolutely nothing he was going to do. When somebody was in need, if he could meet the need, he would meet it. He could have lent me the $5 and charged me interest. He I mean, wouldn't do that, obviously. Um, he could have um, done something different with the printer. you know. But that's just not the way he was. And that's kind of at the heart of this. He doesn't take advantage of his friends when they're down. He'll meet the need when he can. He'll do quite the opposite of trying to make a buck off of his friends or others the last thing that he points out here the last negative it says he doesn't pervert justice it's pretty simple he doesn't take a bribe against the innocent um i don't know that there's much more we can say about that he's just honest about it you know he's interested in justice which again is a character or a quality trait of the lord is it not um How many of you saw on the um, news this last week the the police officer who had, by her by her account, had come home and mistakenly gone into the wrong apartment and saw a man in her apartment or in the apartment and she pulled out her service revolver and she killed him. Discovered it wasn't her apartment. The man was innocent. He was a Christian man. He happened to be a worship leader at his church. Um, She claims she was confused, came in from a late shift. Went into the wrong apartment, thought somebody was in her apartment, thought he was going to come at her. All the testimony, thing else, um, and then his young, his younger brother t- um, testified at her hearing for the for the um, penalty phase, and she was received. I think it was ten ten years in prison. Is that right, Dustin? I see him. Ten years in prison for what for what she had done, and so here's this guy's younger brother on the witness stand. And tells her that he forgives her. Tells her that she needs Christ. Asked the judge if he could hug her. And the judge said yes. So he comes up off the stand. She runs up to him. Gives him this huge hug. And they hug for a while. The judge then stands up. Walks over to her. Gives her one of her personal Bibles. Tells her, this is my personal Bible. It's yours. It's yours. And you can hear the audio where she says, your job for the next month is to read right here, John 3.16. begins to explain that to her, gives her a hug as well. And yet we have people up in arms because they're more interested in judgment and payback than they are in real justice, mercy, growth and change. Now, whether you believe her story or not. It's hard to imagine that she would just decide somebody to come home and kill her neighbor. But the point that I'm trying to make is you've got this, this picture here where people do want justice, but sometimes our picture of justice is just warped. And we've got this great example of um, somebody who was given a penalty for what they did, but then forgiveness and what I'm going to call true justice extended to them and yet people bristle at that which is partly why we have corruption and we have to have a statement like he doesn't take a bribe against the innocent because people do that i'm not saying that was the case here but the way to read this is that he's really interested in divine justice real justice the kind of justice that god meters out and if he is he, he won't be bribed, much like at Jesus' trial, where the Pharisees, the leaders there, were calling in all of these people. It tells us in the text to give false testimony against Christ. That's not what a leader is supposed to be like, and certainly it's not supposed to be what somebody is like who wants to stand in the Lord's presence. And so what do we do with all this here? The last thing he tells us is, he does, or he who does these things will never be shaken. That's a great word picture for us basically means that he'll have dependency, he'll have security in the Lord, his relationship with the Lord will not be shaken or disturbed. David uses it elsewhere to refer to the Lord as well, throughout the Psalms, that a man who is like this cannot be shaken, cannot be disturbed. So what do we do with this? One of the things I love about this psalm is that it was written by an imperfect man. It's a psalm in many respects that's about being perfect, isn't it? I mean, if you look at it, it's he's supposed to be blameless. And all these things that, you know, these are all things that are related to who God is. And so, if he just does these things, if he's perfect, he has nothing to worry about, right? But do you suppose that's David's point? No. David knows that we can't do these things. David knows that we cannot walk in perfection. We are a miserable failure at these things on our own, are we not? And so I love the fact that here we have, David is like the perfect man to write this, because we can look at him and go, but wait a minute, he's telling us these things, He's obviously cherishes these things in his own heart, but David would be the first to admit that we can't do this, and it isn't about checking this stuff off. It's not like this gentleman that I met at the gym who was like, I think I could probably reason my way, I could debate God, and I think I'd probably win, because I'm pretty smart. That isn't what this is intended to do. Remember, David, the man who wrote this, was called a blameless man, a man after God's own heart, not because he was perfect at these things, but because each one of these things were what David desired in his heart. He wrote Psalm 1, where he said the man of God will meditate on these things, try to learn them, understand them. So he didn't write it as a checklist, But here here we have something else that's unique to us as believers. And that's that these things are true of us when we understand our relationship with Christ, are they not? We cannot be blameless in and of ourselves. We can't, as he says up in the top there, he must walk with integrity, must be blameless. We can't do that on our own. In fact, Ephesians chapter 4, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 1, why don't you turn there with me briefly. Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians 1 verse 4 says this, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Right before that he says it's because we are in Christ. And so the Lord has chosen us in Christ and has made us blameless in Christ because Christ himself is blameless. What about 2 Corinthians chapter 5? What about our righteousness? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 he made him Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so what that we might become the righteousness of God in him so we are blameless in Christ we are righteous in Christ we also have the truth when he says here that he speaks the truth in his heart the only way we can do that is because we have Christ in our hearts as well I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 again You'll put back there Ephesians chapter 4 I'm going to read just uh, probably about 10 verses here 12 verses but you do not learn Christ in this way if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus that in reference to your former manner of life you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which in likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, notice what it says in our psalm this morning, speak truth, notice what it says in our psalm this morning, with one with your neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must lo- no longer steal, but rather must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who is in need. That matches our psalm this morning about not, Ripping off your brothers and sisters with interest. Swearing to your own hurt. That fits what he says here. But having something to share. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let our bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. What's the point of that passage? He starts off by saying, you have the truth of Christ in you, and the truth of Christ in you leads to these things. And so, what we ultimately have here is that these things are all possible, and only possible, because of the gospel and because of Jesus Christ. And that ultimately answers the question. Who can dwell? In the Lord's presence. Not just today, but forever. James says in chapter 4, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's a here and now. And so, these things are not a checklist, but these are obviously things we should pursue. But we pursue them because of our relationship with Christ And it's a reflection of him indwelling and living within us. So this is ultimately an expression of the one who does just what David says elsewhere, to love the Lord. And so again, not a checklist, but a great reminder of, first off, what God expects of us, but again, all found in a relationship with Christ. What this tells me is that As Christians, we should be thinking about these things. You know, we've used this phrase before that so oftentimes we get saved and stuck. We don't grow. We don't mature. And for that reason, oftentimes the church doesn't look like this. We have many believers that don't look like this. The question is, what kind of believer do we want to be? We should look like this. And we look like that because of our relationship with Jesus Christ.